1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, right now. And I specifically pray that I might decrease, you might increase, that your word would be proclaimed, that people's hearts and souls would be stirred by the power of the gospel, and that you would reconcile man to yourself, that you would stir us to love and good works, you would empower us, embolden us to live a life of confession, repentance, and faith, as your text leads us to now. Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. You know, sometimes discerning truth can be a really difficult thing. You know, we live in a world that's full of news, and the news are coming from different news stations, and we can get that news on Facebook, we can get it on Twitter and Instagram, and there are now fact checkers, right? Fact checkers to let us know if the truth, the things that people are saying is true. And then there are fact checkers to fact checkers. Um, I think about this too, and I'm sure some of you can relate. You know, I have four sons, uh, you know, ranging 10 and down. Um, you know, and, it, and it's oftentimes we find ourselves in a place where my wife and I, Sarah, we're having to discern what is, what is true and what is a lie. Uh, you know, things like, you know, uh, who left their plate sitting at the table. Why, you know, we, this is basic stuff. We say it every single time. We sit down for a meal every single time, every night. Clean your plate off the table. Whose plate? Not me. What about you? Not, not me. It's not me. What about you? Uh, it's definitely not me. Okay. Well, who got mud on the couch? Not me, as they stand there with mud all over their shoes that matches the mud spot on the couch. Or we'll be on a car ride, and someone will pass gas. And you say, who did that? You know, we still have one in diapers, so it's, it's kind of a thing like we need to know. You know, did you do this or did you not? Because if you didn't, it's probably him and we need to pull over. But not me, not me, not me. Sarah? <laughs> you know, or who put that hole in the wall? You know, not me, not me. Sarah? Listen, boys, which one of you put the hole in the wall? You know, we know Sarah didn't do it. No, your mom didn't do it. 
Or you think about this, I think about this sometimes. What about the, y'all remember the best-selling book? Um, I think it was like 2013, 14, it was a little boy who died and had the dream. Uh, yeah, heaven is for real. Uh, interesting enough, I don't know if y'all remember the guy's last name that wrote it. It was his dad that actually penned the book and wrote it. His last name was Malarkey. Um, several years after the book was published, you know, it came out, the mother and the son, and by the way, it's a sad situation, he had a terrible accident and was in a coma for a long time and, uh, you know, they, the, you know, the doctors say he did, it was, he did die for a little while and then he came back and, and uh, so it's a really sad situation, I'm not making light of what happened to him, it's a terrible thing that happened. But years later, his mother and the child, they confessed to say, this is, it was all made up. It was not true. And the dad who penned the book, they just, he disappeared. Like, nowhere to be found. Mother and the son, they never saw a dime from this book. And the publisher, how, think about this. How long was it before the, when the publisher found out all this was not, not true? And they continued to sell it. You know, the thing is, you know, it can sometimes be hard to discern the truth. And in this situation, if you want to know about heaven, don't ask a kid. Read your Bible. You know, so it can be sometimes hard to discern the truth. And the scriptures are good to, at, at helping us navigate and, and miss the pitfalls and, and, and miss the guide rails that keep us on the road. And, and they keep us from stepping on these landmines and... This is what we find in the text this morning. We see in this chapter, in these verses, three lies that threaten the very heart of the gospel and threaten the very foundation of Christian discipleship. Three lies, the perfectionist lie, the legalist lie, and the antinomian lie. I will define all of these. And by the way, this is Sort of another unorthodox for myself in terms of the points. The points are just a word and a simple definition. So you don't have to stress about long uh, notes, uh, points today. I, I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. But the first one is the lie of perfectionism. Number one, the lie of perfectionism says, I am not culpable. Meaning, I am not doing anything. I, I have not done anything that would make me liable to judgment. Perhaps I'm not as good as I want to be. I'm not entirely without blame in everything. But this lie of perfectionism says I am not culpable. I'm not worthy of God's judgment or condemnation. I basically get it right. You know, my wife went on a mission trip. Uh, about 15, 16 years ago to England. Um, and uh, part of the work they were doing on that trip was some street evangelism. And as you know, the post-Christian movement happened in Europe a long, long time ago. Um, and so most people, they have a bit of a foundation. They understand, you know, religiosity, but really don't have relationships with the Lord. And so... Anyway, she's there, she's having a conversation with this lady, and um, she's talking to her about, about what the scriptures teach, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the woman abruptly stopped her and said, whoa, not me, 
I'm, I'm not a sinner, you know, and, uh, and, 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 you know, Sarah pushed back a little bit of what the scriptures teach. Well, yeah, but that's, that's not me. I'm not a sinner. Sarah quickly realized that this conversation was not going to make it very far. Uh, someone who has no idea of their own sin and their perceived perfectionist um, uh, position. And haven't we all heard the language? Maybe even some of us have said it before. We say that it's not the real me. You know, I, I have, you know, I've been in ministry and I've, I've had conversations with people who are struggling with addictions, addictions to substances, addiction to pornography. And they, and, and they would sometimes speak in the third person. That, that wasn't me. Uh, that was something other than, than me. Or deep down, I know that I'm a good person. Uh, I've heard this at funerals before. When they can't think of much else to say, they can say, though, deep down, he was a good person, far down. How far down? I don't know. Never dug that far. But if you could just keep digging, I know you would see he was a good person. We talk like that. Like there is a true, real self inside of us that's really good to the core and the rest of us. Well, that's, that's not really us. Perfectionism says I'm not culpable. Look at 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Thinking about being without sin in your nature. You don't have a sin principle within you. Sin is somebody else's problem. And John says, if that's what you're telling yourself, you are deceiving yourself. And if we try to do this, we set it aside and we try to ignore it. I'm not going to talk about my sin. We diagnose it. There must be some sort of psychological or physiological reason to the reason why I'm like this or have done these. Or there's social things and there's all these levels of oppression that I have and who I am. And those are the reasons and I have these labels that I can kind of attach to them. These are the reasons that I you know, struggle with the things that I have but... But, but, but it's, it's not really something that, that is, is sin. Or we relativize it and compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I definitely don't do the things that this person does. I may not be perfect, but it's definitely not sins that would condemn me before God forever. John says, if we say this, then we believe a lie, and the truth is not in us. And I believe, prayerfully, I believe that you came here believing that you actually know the truth, that you are not okay. You certainly came here knowing that the people that came with you are not okay, and they actually know that, uh, that, that you know that. Uh, you know that your pastor is not okay. You, you know that in those quiet moments, you're aware of some of the things you thought in those quiet moments. The fleeting thoughts that, that come to your head. The, the, the sort of fantasies that you've nurtured in your heart. Some of you are coming to church and you know that 
what kind of life you're living right now, and it, and it betrays your confession to Jesus. You know, if you say about yourself that you have no sin, then you are deceiving yourself. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is saying, if you think you have not sinned, if you think that sin is just uh, something in your past and, and not in your present, if, if that's what you think, not only does the Bible say that you're lying, verse 6, not only does the Bible say that you are deceived, verse 8, but the Bible says, verse 10, you are making God out to be a liar. That's how strong this language is. You're saying God is a liar if you think that you don't have a problem with sin. Why? Because the Bible is really clear throughout all the scriptures that all of us, every one of us, has a sin problem. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is praying in the temple and he's saying, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7, 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Everyone, not one, can claim to be perfect. No one in this room is done with sinning. And, and isn't this why heaven is going to be so good? I mean, really? Listen, you may have come here thinking, I've got many problems. And I want the pastor to speak in a way that's relevant, that, that helps me. In my life. So, so give me something practical. Give me. Uh, so could, could you help me? Well I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to tell you. What your problem really is. Your problem. Is you. My problem. Is also you. No I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's me. My problem is also me. Your problem is you. This weekend, you struggled with indwelling sin. This week, I, I struggled with indwelling, indwelling sin. Not just a broad religious acknowledgement, yes, I am a sinner. No, I, I'm talking real God-offensive, God-offending, people-harming, self-destructive sins. And there's no use to deny. Your friends know it. Your family knows it. God knows it. The only one who may not know it is you. Let us not believe the lie of perfectionism. Here's the second lie. If the lie of legalism, and so it, it, it is the lie of legalism. The lie of perfectionism says, I am not culpable. The lie of legalism says, I am not forgivable. See, the legalist often begins with the acknowledging that truth, uh, the truth about sin, that, that, and, and they get this part right. Yes, God is holy. Yes, there is a standard. Yep, I don't deny the sin. I see lots of sin around me. All my friends are sinners. And the legalist is saying, yep, 
I'm a sinner too. Some of you are coming to church and you like for the pastor to, to get a few punches in, right? And beat you up a little bit. And you're going to show grit and resolve now, uh, saying, I'm going to leave this place, and this week, golly, I'm going to be a good Christian. And that will last, I don't know, maybe your nap today. Some of you fools won't even make it out the building. But you sort of get the moral, you sort of get your moral boots up. You white knuckle this thing, I'm, I'm going to get it done. You know, grit your teeth. And so the legalist is not wrong to think that the law must be obeyed. The, 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 the problem is that they can think they can obey it to God's satisfaction. They know there is a standard. They don't deny sin in them or, or anyone else. Their mistake is thinking that they can make it. They can make it without sin, without mercy. And it's a foolish dream. You will not be good enough. No matter how hard you work, it is a failed dream. And some of you feel that crushing weight week after week. Because you've never really come to the end of yourself. You've got the theology down. You, you acknowledge all of that. The five solas and everything like that. But, but you've never really come to the end of your saying God. Saying God I have nothing to offer to you except my sin. Please forgive me. And you're still holding on to this little thread of a dream. That perhaps you can contribute just a little something to your own righteousness. And you're crushing yourself with it because it won't happen. There is another way. This passage shows us it's the only way. You see, verse 7, John uses language of cleansing. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9 again, we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness we need to get that spot out to wash it out to be washed clean this makes me think about doing laundry with my four sons and there are just some stains that just are not going to come out you know those of you who have kids who play baseball you know you can have a white pair of baseball pants and you know there's all kinds of techniques all sorts of things you can do but you know that, that those pants are never the same after they hit that red dirt, that red crush pick, just once. See, we need someone else to do it. And the scriptures testify, John testifies, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Then we see in verse 9, uses this transactional language, forgive us our sins, he forgives us and cancels the debt that we owe him. The legalists will not accept this. The legalists may accept in theory and sing all the songs about God's grace. But in their heart, they are thinking, no, I'm going to do it this week. I'm, I'm going to get it done. I'm finally going to get my act together. I, you know, I really love this sermon. And I'm going to get really motivated 
to, to finally prove myself, but you won't. Do you see verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. Just? Well, that's strange. You know, you would think what follows there is he is faithful and just to judge us of our sins. Uh, he is faithful and just to condemn us our sins for our sins. Justice we often, often associate with punishment. You know, when the, when the judge is just, he gives us what we deserve. Or he gives the, uh, he, he gives the, uh, the person on trial, gives them exactly what they deserve. So, what do we deserve? We deserve punishment. So, God, being just, must mean he's going to bring judgment. So, why does he say he is faithful and just? Therefore... We can be cleansed. You see, the legalist is right in thinking the demands of the law must be met. But he's wrong to think that we can meet them. God is true to his promise. God is true to his covenant. God is true to himself. So that because of the cross of Christ, God can be both just and the justifier to the ungodly. There are some who profess to believe in the gospel, but there is a war being waged within them. With this pervasive question still rattling around, but have I done enough? Man, I hope I make it. There must be more that I can do. God does not mean for you to carry this burden within you. He means to set you free from the bondage of sin and guilt. He wants to set you free from that. He, he wants your conscience to be clean. He wants you to put your head down on your pillow at night and, and know and rest in the fact that you have a heavenly Father who loves you. He wants you to confess your sins and know that He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. The way of the legalist will not work. It is also a lie. And then finally, if the lie of perfectionism says, I am not culpable, the lie of legalism says, I am not forgivable, antinomianism says, I am not accountable. Anti, meaning anti. Nomos, is the Greek word for law, so antinomianism, against the law of God. This can take place in very explicit ways. It can take place in very unexplicit ways. The sort of person who says, uh, you know what, I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. God's forgiven me, past, present future of all sins, so we're cool. It can also take place more subtly, not so much in principle, but in practice, the lie of antinomianism is that we can have fellowship with God while still walking in darkness. You see that in verse 6. We say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie, 
and do not practice the truth. I put this one last, antinomianism, because it can easily follow on the heels of, of getting the other two right. And we have a lot of recovering fundamentalists in this church who have at one point or another wrestled with this very thing. That is, when you believe the truth about your sin, I have sin in me. You know, you acknowledge that. I know I have sin in me. We are therefore, um, and, and, and you also believe the truth about God's grace. So we can easily fall for the lie that says, we are therefore not accountable for the life that we live right now in Christ. Okay, yep, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. All sorts of sins. God is gracious, though. I regularly embrace the reality that I am a sinner and I have received grace. They say all the right things. You get the first one right. You get the second one right. And you still get this wrong. Because there's no effort in the life of an antinomian. There's no room for exhortation in your life. There's no room for improvement in your life. And I'll be honest with you. you know, I think everybody sort of falls on a pendulum here. Maybe, maybe a pendulum is not the best way to put it because it's, it's three points, not two. But anyways, it's probably more like a landmine. And I've been in arguments with my, my wife. And, you know, and she'll sometimes say, you're, you're not... You're not listening to what I'm saying. You, you, you have, you're acting like there's no room for, for improvement in you. You know? And you're like, of course, I don't always receive that when she says that to me in the moment. You know? But later, for myself saying, you know what? I, I, I am guilty. You may find it in conversations with other people. You find it in... And, and, and Facebook posts and, and everything else. And, and, and so there's no room for improvement in your life. You, um, you know, this is the sort of attitude that is, uh, you know, I, I am so gospel-centered that I revel in being a complete and utter failure, just a spiritual failure all the time. Now listen, here's where there is a half-truth, and you need to be discerning. The Bible does encourage us to boast in our weakness, our suffering, our struggles at times. But that is different in boasting in disobedience. To think by failure, if by failure we mean rebellion from God's law, disobedience to God's word. If we think that, that this is the mark of spiritual maturity, we are light years away from what the spirit of the New Testament is which never treats sin as something light or something trivial, being indifferent to sin, or even boasting in continued sin, as, uh, you know, you know uh, it is really incomplete and utter odds with the spirit of the New Testament. If we say we have fellowship while continuing to walk in darkness, we are not practicing the truth. For starters, we don't know the truth about ourselves, and there is probably a Gnostic idea seeping through here. You know, in 1 John, we'll see this as we continue in our studies through 1 John. Lurking in the background of this whole letter, there's a group of false teachers. 
um, some kind of heresy. Scholars debate on what they should actually call this heresy. Most label it you know, some sort of Gnostic heresy or proto-Gnosticism, something that's almost Gnosticism. Uh, you know, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, uh, you know, which begins with a G just to be extra tricky. Um, which means knowledge. It, 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 um, it was the pagan philosophy that, that oftentimes attached itself to the Christian faith. Um, you know, and, it, and, and it said, among other things, that uh, the way to be saved or the way towards redemption, probably not in the exact sense that we would think, but in a similar fashion, some thought, uh, you know, through this gnosis or secret knowledge, we could find redemption, reconciliation. But they also believed in the separation of the body and the spirit. So that the spirit could not be uh, contaminated by the deeds of the body. And though we don't have people claiming to be Gnostics in our day, this idea is common. Okay, you may say, what what you do with your body, what you do on Friday or Saturday night, What you do with your bodily organs, uh, that's just body stuff. And it's the spirit that really matters. And if those things aren't connected, why are we so obsessed with body and sex? That's a very Gnostic way of looking at things. And it's very unchristian because we have a God who created a material world. We have a God who promises that heaven will come down to earth. And we have a God who took on Human flesh. There's no place for denial of the physical in the Christian experience. Redemption always entails saving us from something and to something else. This is what repentance is. From something else to something else. And so we don't understand ourselves we think, well, I, I can just continue to walk in whatever wickedness, darkness that I want. And God is just fine because I like to sin and God likes to forgive. We don't know the truth about ourselves and we don't know the truth about God. You see verse 5? All of this is predicated upon the nature of God himself. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, verse 7. He says he is the light. How could those walking in unchecked holiness have fellowship with the holy God of Israel? It is an impossibility. For some people, they can only think about God as judge. They can only think about God in a legal way as a justifier. And if God is judge, they're either innocent or guilty. Nothing in between. Innocent or guilty. And so they believe the gospel and they believe they're forgiven and accepted by God. And there's nothing I can do to put my justification in jeopardy. And so we only have this one category, justified or unjustified. Innocent or guilty. Therefore, to speak of any broken relationship with God sounds, sounds very ungospel-like. But you see, 
that doesn't really get at all to what the Bible is actually saying. The Bible says, yes, there is, uh, it's true that we do relate with God in a legal way. But we also relate with God in a very familial way. He's also our father who has adopted us. And when you have a father, who you have a dynamic relationship. A father can be displeased with you even though he still loves you. He can be very pleased by your obedience. And some of us only relate to God as judge. And we don't think about our Heavenly Father. How it's possible to displease the Father. When we grieve the Holy Spirit. God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12. You know, we're scared of that language. Because we, you know... We think that suddenly it means I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm unsaved. No, it means you have a father, a real father who cares for you and loves you. Some of you have been Christians nearly your whole life and you've never really experienced or known that God, your heavenly father, is pleased with you. Yes, you may know that in an abstract, generic, I'm you know, I'm forgiven way. But to you, but to know that, that when you sacrifice, when you give generously, when you, uh, when you make the hard phone call, when, when, when people hurt you and you don't hurt them back, that your heavenly Father is pleased with those things? It's not that... You're more or less justified, but there's a relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's why John can say, you can't walk in darkness and think to be walking with the one who is in the light. What kind of relationship is that? John 1.4 says, in him was life and the light, in him was life and the life was the light of men, the light is truth and purity. Darkness is error and evil. And so Christianity is, if you have been called out of darkness and into light, now you walk in the light as he is in the light. Sin can interrupt our relationship with God. The lie of the antinomian is to say nothing interrupts your relationship with God. And that's not true. If you are justified, then, then nothing will make you unjustified. Let's make that clear. That's one thing the antinomian gets absolutely right. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. But sin is an interruption in our relationship with God. Our union with Christ is firm and unalterable. Our communion with Christ can ebb and flow. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know that to be true. Your communion with Christ. Sin is an interruption. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with him. Now, Paul's, you'd expect him to say fellowship with God. That's what um, he just said in verse 6. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, what does it say? One another. Suddenly, there is a horizontal plane to walking in the light. The true community of Christ is the community of those who are walking in the light. This is why we take covenant membership so seriously here at Gapshaw. Honestly. This is why we take church discipline so seriously. This is why we take pastoral care matters seriously. Because this is, this is not a country club. Yes, come as you are for sure. But when you make a commitment to become a member of this church, we are committing to ourselves and committing and before God that, that we are people who walk in the light. And we're giving permission to those around us that whenever I deviate, if you see me, as the scriptures say, entangled and snared in sin, brothers, what does the scripture say? Confront him. If you see me about to step on a landmine, my prayer is that you will push me away. Because you know what it will do to my relationship with the Lord. It will be a disruption to my communion with him. Not my union with Christ that's unbreakable, but my communion with him. And if there's real fellowship with one another, it can only happen when people together are walking in light, not hanging out in darkness. Walking in the light as one who is not ruled by the fear of God, one who does not fear to serve God, one who worships God while walking in the light, one who keeps the right way. And I love what Calvin says. The one who walks in the light keeps the right way even though in many things he sighs under the burden of the flesh. Do you sigh under the burden of the flesh? Do you see that the Bible is so much better, so more realistic, more, uh, more hopeful than anything you're able to, to conjure up with or to find out on your own? I would say, let me tell you about it, but I don't have to do that. You know, let the Bible tell you. Look, you're not going to find anything else that fits all this together, that, that avoids all the lies of perfectionism, then all the lies of legalism, and then all the lies of antinomianism. Because we all have the problem of pushing, you know, we poke holes in one and then we deviate to another. We, then, we, then we step over here to another and then we have a tendency to poke holes in it and then we deviate to the other. Then we may fall into this trap of, you know, we care about holiness, which is a good thing. But, but you begin to see your spiritual progress and holiness as a checklist. And you may eventually culminate into telling yourself, look at all my progress. You know, God must be so proud of me compared to all these other jokers. You know, but the Bible shows us a better way. It pushes away these lies and gives us the truth. And encourages us to walk in the light. Walking in the light means that we are walking with the one who is in the light. It means, life, uh, it means a life of progress in the things of God. It means a life of consistent holiness. And to walk in the light means we are to
to be honest with ourselves that we are not perfect. We have not arrived and we've got a long ways to go. Confession and repentance is not something we do once and set it behind us. Confession and repentance is something that is the mark of a, a growing Christian. It's not one that repents less. It's actually the one who repents more. You see how the Bible is so much smarter than you and I. You know, it understands, okay, we just have this, you know, position of perfectionism. And then, and then it says you, you've got to walk as he walks. And then, uh, and then understands that some people may be beginning to freak out a bit. Oh, no, you know, I'm not sure uh, what I'm, you know, if I'm walking in the light or I'm not uh, as he is in the light. And then, and then you come to verses like verse 9. Well, look, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just because part of walking in the light is to admit that sometimes we still are cowering in the darkness and you expose it. You know, John chapter 3, 19 and 20 says, And this is the judgment, the light that comes into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You need to walk in holiness and God knows you won't do it perfectly. So part of walking in the light is to confess your sins and be forgiven and keep walking in the light. We all need daily forgiveness of sins. And it's how we live in the family of God. You know, this should be modeled in our homes. It should be modeled in uh, our families, with our spouse, with our kids, with each other. Our family that is in our small group. You know, that's how we live in the family of God because... Sin isn't going away, so confession better not go away. Calvin also says, integrity of the conscious is what distinguishes light from darkness. Well, you know, what is your conscience telling you this morning? Really? What is your conscience telling you? Because God wants you to have a good conscience. He wants you to walk around, he, he, you know, he wants you to walk around life with a or he does not want you to walk around with life with this low level of guilt. You know, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a pretty bad person. Rather, he wants you to have a clean conscience so that when you see your sin, you don't ignore it. You don't just relativize it. You say, that's sin. I'm sorry, God. You come quickly and you confess it. And he says, Ah, oh, my child, my son, my daughter, I forgive you. Because of Christ, I would be unjust if I did not forgive you. What is your conscience telling you? Some of you may not have listened to your conscience and are really long time some of you may not 
have known the gift of a clean conscience for a long time, this gospel is enough. We see here in the gospel of Christ that there is grace to show you your sins, to show for your sins, to to pay for your sins, to counter the lie of perfectionism, to counter the lie of legalism, and to counter the lie of antinomianism. There is grace to sanctify you as you fight for your sin and counter all these different lies. And we're encouraged to walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus Christ is the light. He is the one that we set our eyes upon. Who paid the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. He paid it in full. He died a death that you and I deserve to die. He conquered an enemy that you and I could not conquer ourselves. And he's risen from the grave. And the Bible says, if we believe, confess and our sins and rest in the finished work of Jesus, then we can be reconciled to God forever and ever. And then, and then, by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are then pushed along, carried along by the Holy Spirit to walk in godliness, to pursue holiness, to continue to repent of sins that today we may not recognize, but tomorrow we probably will. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's pray.